0: This is the Word of God, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, but as for me, Asaph, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For, the, for they, the wicked, they don't have any pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which in that day is a good thing. It means you're well fed, you're rich. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride, it's their necklace. Violence uh, covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily or lifted up, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Is there wisdom in following God or believing in God? Behold, these are the wicked. Here's his summary. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Then he starts to wonder, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus or I'll speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought about how to understand this, and the this there is why the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer, When I thought of how to figure this out, how to connect these dots, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It bended my mind until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, there, I discerned their end. Truly, God, you set them in slippery places. Truly, you make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The wicked, he says, are actually like a dream when one awakes. They're a vapor there one minute and gone the next. O oh Lord, when you roused yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. So whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Our God, uh, this psalm seems bipolar. One minute he's saying it seems the wicked have it so easy and life is so great and the next minute he describes him a really different way. One minute he calls life with you just awful and the next he says it's to be desired and it's his refuge and so Uh, Jesus, tonight, straighten us out. Give us eyes, give us ears, give us a heart. Speak to us tonight from your very mouth to our very ears and our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. So Anna's back there on the back row on the right side. Um, I told you all a few weeks ago, we met somewhere over here uh, a long, long time ago. But we were friends for a while. We didn't date until Anna had already moved to Colorado to work at a church, and I was in Philadelphia uh, for seminary. And so all of, our, all of our dating relationship occurred across a 1,600-mile chasm. From Colorado to Philadelphia, all two and a half years of, of our dating relationship happened from that kind of a distance. Two different time zones. Anna worked... Um, Long days and long nights being in youth ministry, and so by the time she was free and home, it was like, uh, you know, nine thirty or ten her time, which was eleven thirty or midnight my time. I had roommates who hogged the uh, the the, uh, the internet, and so uh, whenever we would do Skype, it was pixelated and it would freeze. And if you've ever dated long distance, you know what happens: it freezes in the worst possible moments, and it's like a horrendous. Shot of their face when it freezes, and you're like, Oh, okay, let me close this window out and we'll push refresh. And that was our relationship with interspersed visits every now and then for those two and a half years. In our more honest moments, in our more candid moments, Anna and I would both tell you, she knows I'm telling these, this story, by the way, you can stop freaking out. Um, in our more honest moments, we would both start to wonder, is this really worth it? Like, what are we doing here? Is this, is this worth uh, for Anna putting up with this guy and all of his ups and downs for this long? For me, is this worth it, like, you know, trying to be a seminary student and waiting up till 10 o'clock to receive a, the beginning of a call? And what made it even harder is that Anna in Colorado and me in Philly are looking at all of our friends in those two places who are like paired up and dating, and it's like fall in Philadelphia, beautiful leaves, it's like just amazing in Philadelphia in the fall. And I'm like looking out the library window, and they're like taking a walk in the neighborhood by the seminary. And Anna's talking to her friends, and they're like, yeah, I love, I can just like, right when work is over, call up my boyfriend, and we can go for a jog in the park, or we can go grab dinner or get a beer or something. And we started to do what probably a lot of you start to do. Uh, It was hard not to compare ourselves to those couples and to say things like, man, they they have it so easy. And here's us, struggling just to kind of be able to make a phone connection every other night. Because of the difficulty of that, and because everybody else seemed to have it so easy, we began to kind of envy them on our worst days. And say, man, I wish we could trade stories. I wish we had it that easy. I wish we got to live in the same town together. I wish we got to do the spontaneous stuff that builds a relationship. And we, on our worst days, lost perspective. And when you lose perspective, you lose heart. And when you lose heart, you lose your footing. And when you lose your footing, you almost fall, or you do fall. And our relationship almost fell. Uh, several times, and here's the thing about when you fall, when you slip and fall, and you're lying on the floor on your back, and you're looking up, isn't it crazy how everybody else seems a lot taller than you in that moment, a lot stronger than you, a lot more put together than you, a lot better off than you, you're down there, and they're up there looking at you, And so, adding insult to injury is in those moments where we were slipping, we were falling because we'd lost perspective, lost heart, lost our footing. We looked at everyone around us, and it just seemed that they had it so easy, and we wanted to trade lives with them. And so, my question to you is this Have you ever wanted to trade lives with someone else? Have you ever wanted to trade relationships or stories? You ever wanted to trade uh, GPAs or parents or home life or clarity about the future? Psalm 73 ups the ante because it's not asking those real but relatively less important questions. Psalm 73 comes at us and asks the question, have you ever wanted to trade lives with the wicked? Have you ever been down on the ground, you've lost perspective, you've lost heart or motivation, your foot is starting to slip, you're on the ground and you're looking up at all of your friends who don't follow Jesus, who couldn't care less about Christianity or the Bible or are you after whatever else and you're wondering, they, that's, they're happy and I'm not. Their life is simple and mine's always complex. Psalm 73 wants to ask you the question, have you ever wanted to trade lives with them, with the, with the godless, as it calls them? And we could add the question, because of what we've been doing kind of in this series, uh, have you ever wanted to kind of bail on this life as an elect exile, right? As we've been talking the past few weeks, have you ever kind of wanted to, to bail out and get on some other track? So nobody, I'm assuming, just. From your body language, I'm assuming, because you're a human being like me, nobody is a stranger to what I'm talking about. All of us would love to jump into someone else's skin from time to time. And even as Christians, um, I know you can relate to that dilemma of wondering, would life maybe be easier? Could I still be just as happy without all of this stuff that we do here? And that's what this psalm is about. So the question becomes this, how do we get to a place like that? If it's true that you either are at a place like that now, you have been at a place like that, or if you haven't, you will, how do we get to a place like that? Uh, for ASAP and for us, here's the dynamic, here's how it happens, and we'll kind of curve back to the passage. It happens when there's a, a, a growing gap between two things. How you thought your life was supposed to go, and how it actually seems to be going. The wider those two things are apart from each other, the the more the distance between how you thought life would be going and how it actually seems to be going, the more vulnerable we are to the kind of envy and the kind of um, unbelief and the kind of doubt that Asaph expresses here, the kind of cynicism that's here. So, what's it for you? What's the gap? For all of us, there's a gap in our sexuality. For some of you, it's lonelier, though, because from your earliest conscious moment, the gap for you is the same-sex attractions that you were born with, that you never really decided to, you never filled out a scantron and said, I'd like that one. It just showed up, and you don't know where it came from. And you maybe thought, at some point, I can pray this away, or, you know, becoming a Christian, God makes me a new person, and so I'm not going to struggle with this stuff anymore. And And now, maybe years into that, or maybe almost two decades into that, you're struggling with this gap between how you thought life would go and how life actually seems to be panning out for you, because maybe those attractions still linger and present themselves in every room you walk into. And you, what makes it worse, what makes it lonelier, what makes it harder, is you are surrounded by friends, surrounded by a campus, by a culture, by everybody who's looking at you and saying, I don't get it. Why don't you just, why are you pushing back against those things? They're good. Embrace it. Indulge it. Give into that. It's who you are. So you feel like people in the church don't get you. You feel like people outside of the church don't get you. And you're wondering, is this even worth it anymore? You know, what's the point of all this? Or your friend group, maybe that's not you, maybe, maybe your friend group uh, here in RUF, maybe like you really put yourself out there to come to a place like this or to get involved in a church. But uh, maybe your friend group here just isn't as cool and easy to get along with as all of your other buddies, like back at the fraternity or in the sorority or in your, the high school friends you came to UGA with or who are still here. And you're like, man, um, these guys know me. They seem more loving, they seem more loyal, it's easier to kind of let my hair down and be me around them. And you're wondering, what's the point of even like trying to keep working on these relationships here? What's the point of keeping coming back on a Sunday morning and and showing up again at an awkward church trying to get to know people? And you're wondering, is it time to just throw in the towel? Some of you, it's got to be your parents. You're wondering, what's the point of continuing to try to honor my mother and my father? Have you heard what they said to me or did to me? Do you know what home is like for me? And there's this gap between how you thought Jesus would redeem your family life and how it actually seems to be going. That gap is widening, and you're getting more and more cynical, thinking, this is pointless. This is how this stuff develops. And Asaph said, you heard it, I read it, Asaph said, As for me, my foot had almost slipped, which means he had already lost perspective, lost heart, lost his footing, and almost slipped. That's the anatomy of a fall. Lost perspective, lost motivation, lost footing, fallen. This is a big deal for Asaph to say. Who's this dude Asaph? And why is his name put right on the top of this psalm? The heading of this psalm is inspired too, not just the psalm beneath it. This was not an editorial note added in by somebody after. This is part of the psalm. A psalm of Asaph. Well, who's Asaph? We know from other places in Scripture, Asaph was the choir master for the temple of the people of God. There was one temple. It was in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the temple. And Asaph was the guy in all the vestments, he was the clergy in all the vestments who led the people in worshiping God. That's who this is. Not So kind of like this, but but times a thousand, worship leader, of the temple of God. That's who Asaph is. And here's the gap. What's the gap for Asaph? What are the two poles of the gap? Verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And that is true. He's not just parroting some cynical Sunday school answer. I get it. God is good. Blah, blah, blah. He believed that. And it is true. But then everything else he says right after that is the other pole. That's what what he thought life with God is supposed to pan out as. Life as a Christian in this world is supposed to pan out with. That sounds pretty simple, right? To the pure in heart. To Israel, God's people, God is good. Here's the other part of it. Here's what he says after. Very honest gut check moment for Asaph. I'm very thankful he was honest the day he wrote this. Verse 5 My life is plagued with problems. I'm stricken with problems. Verse 21 My soul was embittered and cynical. Verse 22 I was all torn up inside, I was brutish, I was ignorant. Things got so bad that even in verse 3, he said, I envied the arrogant. I secretly wanted the life of all the people not at the temple right now who are following me as I, as, as I lead them in worship. This is a pretty big deal. So it's like the guy is leading worship and he's daydreaming. But all the people he passed on the way to worship, man, I'd trade lives with them. I want their life and they can take my life. He envied the arrogant. Really quickly, what does it mean? Like, what about the arrogant or the wicked, the godless? Which, by the way, the Bible, that's just shorthand in Bible language for those who are not united to Jesus by faith. Those who, those who are not connected to God by His grace. It's kind of a, a catch-all term for, for those people. What is it? What in them did he want? What in their life and their story did he covet and, and crave and want a piece of? I think it's a lot like us. Follow with me. Verse 3 through 11, you'll see it jump off the page. He said, I saw them prosper. Right after that, they seem to live such painless lives. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They've got, they got it going on. They've got what they need. They don't have troubles like the rest of mankind, he says. They have everything they want. They enjoy a life of ease, and their riches multiply. And that's what we begin to crave, and that's what we look at. And if you get into that dark moment, maybe you begin to do the math and deduce, well, then do I really need Jesus for life to work, to be okay, to have a good life? Do I really need Jesus if I'm looking at all these people and that's them? That seems to be what life is like for them. Asaph was, he got to the point where he is, uh, he's going down that road in his mind and he says, did I keep my heart clean for nothing? Was it all in vain? So this is like crisis of soul moment. This isn't just a little bit of like, man, I've, it's like 30 weeks in a row I've led worship at this church. Like I could use a break. He's, he's beyond that. He's questioning the whole endeavor at this point and saying, is this pointless is this all just a game? Are we all just going through the motions with this stuff? Can you relate to that? The choir master, the worship leader at the temple in Jerusalem was asking that. Here's the problem. What I just described to you is called cynicism, right? You've heard the term. We use the term cynical. We, I mean, when I think of cynical, I think of eye roll, But I think uh, here's what cynicism means. Cynicism, a cynical person, I mean, we need to distinguish it from sarcastic because maybe that's a little bit more benign and not what's going on here. Cynicism is of a a more severe variety. Cynicism happens when you begin to see through everything. Everything becomes transparent. You know better about everything. You kind of, you've you've seen behind the curtain, you'd be like, like Wizard of Oz, like, oh, the... The wizards is tiny little guys on a big deal. Cynicism is when you see through everything. So for example, you see through Christ, you start seeing through Christian community, and you say, "Man, there's a bunch of hypocrites in here. These people don't practice what they preach. This isn't like, you know, are you have people they say this or they do that, but this isn't really. There's not really anything real or, or, or weighty about what's going on here. You'll hear the words or you've said the words or you've thought the words. Man, my non-Christian friends seem to be more loving and loyal than my friends here. I heard that like two weeks ago out of the mouth of one of my former students who's been loved well. He's been pursued well. He's a dear guy, but he's fallen into this. I have, uh, we, we start seeing through the church like, man... The reason people go to church in the South is just because it's tradition and it's habit, which is often true. But you start thinking everybody's playing the game. Everybody's keeping up appearances. It's all about pretense. It's all about kind of pacifying a conscience or whatever. And you see through church too, and it's just not that big a deal anymore. You see through these sermons. You see through what I'm saying right now. Oh, I wonder what Ben's going to say next. Oh, bingo, I was right. I win the prize. You know, he said that, you know, of course, sin is bad, as dangerous, you need Jesus. I I get it. That's seeing through stuff. And it's toxic, and it's acidic, and it eats your soul. We begin to see through even God himself. And we say things like, yeah, I was raised this way. I used to believe that stuff. I used to believe in him, but it's kind of like Santa Claus. It's like a a 14-year-old talking about Santa Claus. Yeah, but I saw the light. I mean, it's just a whatever, something my parents told me. And you see through that too. And again, not hypothetical, not theoretical. Things we've thought, we've said, we've heard, things I've heard. Um, I was hanging out with one of my dear friends from nine years ago. As the last time I saw him. We were in RUF together, and uh, we were talking about uh, some of our old buddies from back in the day, and there have been people... Uh, at these microphones, leading worship, um, who not only have fallen away from all of this, but who are hostile towards Christianity now. They were the golden boy, the golden girl of RUF. And nine years later, they have nothing to do with it, and they despise Christians. This stuff is real. Real. I used to think when I heard warnings and stuff in the Bible, like um, what Sarah read earlier from Hebrews, if if today, if you hear his voice, do not resist it. He's calling us to repent. I used to hear that. I was like, man, that kind of sounds harsh. And now I hear it and it's like, God is so good to us. He won't water it down. He knows we need the harsh, undiluted warning because he knows this is real too. And we don't think nine years ahead, but He does. And he says, this kind of cynicism left to grow in your heart will consume you live. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window is transparent because the street or the garden or the car beyond it is opaque. But what about if you saw through the, the car too? It's of no use trying to see through, th- see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. It's good that that window is transparent. What if the car becomes transparent too? What if you begin to see through everything? The danger of cynicism that's described in this psalm, is that you think you're the most in-tune, insightful, alert person in the room everywhere you go. That's why self-righteousness is always a cohabitator with cynicism. I get it. I see through it. These naive people don't. The ironic thing is that though you think you see better than everybody else, you're blind. You don't see anything anymore. C.S. Lewis nails it there. Psalm 73 nails it. And it says, these kind of insights, these kind of envying the wicked, it promises you x ray vision and it leaves you blind every time. That's the fate that God saved Asaph from. Because this isn't how the psalm ends, right? There's a curve in here in the middle of it. How does that change happen? How does. How does Asaph get to a place where he's not consumed alive by that cynicism that had started to grow and put its tentacles through his life and his heart? How did it happen? Really quickly, not because he's a great analyst and figured it out and said, oh, I, I connected the dots, I analyzed the problem, and now I've got the formula to fix it. He said, when I considered this thing, it was a wearisome task. Did he not? He said, when I under, uh, tried to understand why the wicked seemed to prosper and the righteous seemed to suffer, what a wearisome task it was. It brought me to the end of myself. It busted my mind. I didn't, that was not a fruitful path for him. Take notice, those of you like me, prone to analysis paralysis. Asaph warns you. He puts a no trespassing sign on that road and says, please don't go down that road. It will exhaust you and it will not lead you anywhere. So how did Asaph end up at the place that he ended up at. How do we get back on our feet when we slip? How do you get your eyes back when you've gone blind? How do you start seeing opaque objects when you see through everything? I love this. I love this pivot in the psalm. Until. Until he went to the sanctuary of God and he finally understood So he says, until he went to the sanctuary and worshipped God, he lost perspective. He had lost heart and motivation and vision and purpose until he entered the sanctuary of God. He lost his footing. He was slipping until he entered the sanctuary. Everyone was taller than him and seemed to be better off than him until he entered the sanctuary of God. The ironic thing is he was entering the sanctuary of God every day. That was his job. But it seems one day God showed up. said, Asaph. You here looking for me? Because this is my house. And I'm happy to meet you here. When Anna and I were dating, so that seemed like a depressing, awful story about the two and a half years, whatever. But you know what was our saving grace? About every six weeks, Anna would get on a plane or I would get on a plane and we would see each other until we saw each other. We had lost perspective. We We were losing heart. We were losing motivation. We were losing our footing until... We saw each other. We were with each other again. Then you remembered why you're doing all this stuff. It's worth it. She's amazing. I want this. That's what Asaph is saying, that until he saw the real and the living God of the Bible burst through the wall into real life, he was stuck in that cynicism. But as soon as he saw God, he got his feet back. He got his heart back. He got his footing back. He got his perspective back in worship really quickly. Worship is the most realistic thing you will do during your week. And it doesn't just happen here or Sunday morning. We're, all, we're always worshiping. We are worshipers. But worship is supposed to be the most honest, gut-wrenching, realistic, vibrant, high-definition thing you do in any given week. It's, it's the most sane moments of your week. It's what brings you back to reality. It's what snaps you back to attention and says, oh wait, those are all lies. Like when we sing these songs, when you hear these words, when we pray, it pulls you out of the darkness. And it says, it's still true. Even if you forgot this week, even if you don't feel it this week, even if you lost sight of it, even if you've been wanting to trade places with the wicked, it's still true. And importantly, importantly, Worship reminds us we're not worshiping ideas. We're not here to talk about ideas. This is kind of an intellectual group. Like, you're smart people. We like talking about this stuff. But please don't. I think the warning sign of kind of sliding all the way into cynicism to the point that it consumes you is when Christianity is about ideas for you. It's about theology for you. It's about coffee shop conversations where we talk about, oh, it's so satisfying to see how all the dots connect and how the Bible holds water. That is satisfying. But do you know what the Bible reveals? The person of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Son crucified for you to be reunited to the Father forever. That's what the Bible reveals. It's personal. It's not ideas. It's not theology. It's not doctrine. It is personal. Or I should say those ideas, the doctrine, theology points to the person. It's a better way to say it. But it is personal with a capital P. Did you pick up on that in the psalm? Did you see the second Asaph says the lights came on? Listen to what he starts saying. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. See how it gets personal? See how worship is inherently person to person? It is you and your brothers and sisters and your Redeemer. In this interaction, this interpersonal dance. That's what Asaph discovers worship is. And I love the fact that he'd probably been to it a thousand times and he'd grown dull in it, but it was worship where God met him and showed himself to him. This is where we kind of begin to wrap this up. Here's the gospel God gives you himself. Did you think the gospel is that God gives you his stuff? It's easy to think that. It's easy to think that Christianity is about God giving me his stuff. Like a Mardi Gras parade, he's on the float throwing stuff at you. Like, here's a little grace, a little acceptance, a little sonship. You're my daughter. A little peace, a little help on that test. A little clarity about your future. Some forgiveness. Did you know that the good news of the gospel is that God gives you himself? All of himself. Augustine said, how great is a God who gives himself? How much better than a God who gives us stuff but withholds himself? Do you want a friend? Do you want a husband or a wife who gives you stuff but not themself? No, nobody wants that marriage. That's a loveless, cold, dead marriage where you get their stuff but not them. Did you know that the good news of Jesus Christ Is that God is willing to give you himself still, even with what you've done, even with who you are, even with the secrets you carry around. That's why Jesus came. God himself in person on your turf, but on his terms. That you might be one with him again, which is what you were made to be. And when when Asaph says, he is my portion, don't think portion of pie, like I get a slice of God. God gives me a little piece of himself. No, God gives you all of himself. A.W. Tozer says, An infinite God can give all of himself to each and every one of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. You have all of your God, not a piece of him, as if there was no one else in the world. You have all of him. Each of you, I, have all of him, not a piece of him. There is no more of him to give to you. Than what he has given already. The other piece of the gospel in this isn't just that God gives you himself, and that's evident in this psalm, but it's this word nevertheless. I love that word too. Nevertheless. Asaph has been confessing some pretty big stuff that you would think would put a ginormous wedge between him and God, you would think it would be a deal breaker. Asaph basically just said, uh, sign me up for their life, because life with you, not so much. He's about to check out. He said he was brutish. He was like a beast before God. you think that would be a deal breaker. And Asaph says, in spite of the factor, nevertheless, even though I was boneheaded, hard-hearted, foolish, envious, arrogant, animal-like before you, nevertheless, you are with me. You have not left me. You have not ignored my pleas. You hold my right hand. You have caught me from falling. You have helped me get my feet underneath me. In fact, he says, I have seen you guiding me, holding my right hand. Nevertheless, even amidst all my stupidity and sin, you will receive me into glory. Isn't that amazing? What a, what a beautiful one-word gospel for you tonight. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, fill in all the stuff after that. Why? Because Jesus Christ slipped and fell and perished and was alienated that you might stand and live and be brought back to the Father forever. That's the gospel. That's what the Bible's about. If you grew up this, with this or if you didn't grow up with this, that's what the Bible is about. And so if you find yourself tonight... Just like Asaph, if if what I've been saying kind of strikes a nerve with you or worse, you think it should strike a nerve with you, but you're so cold-hearted it doesn't, what do you do? You did what Sarah read earlier. If you hear his voice today, do not continue to choose to harden your heart. Choose to listen to him. Asaph did not repent to get God to be good to him. Asaph repented in his arrogance, in his hardness of heart, because God was good to him. We don't repent. We don't come back to God to try to get him to be gracious to us. We go back to him because he is gracious. And if you don't know this God, if you're not united to him, if you would kind of say, well, after hearing this, I mean... I'm not connected to Jesus, I'm the wicked, I'm the godless, whatever, then you need to know, you need to entertain the possibility that what God has said is true, that life apart from your creator is as impossible as a baby's life apart from its mother in the umbilical cord is possible. It is simply impossible. A branch cannot survive apart from the vine. A hand cannot survive apart from the body. A human being cannot survive, cannot have life, cannot have joy, cannot have peace, cannot have hope, cannot have relationship apart from the God who is all of those things and embodies and gives all those things. And so for you, the call is the same to all the Christians and to me in this room tonight. You're not different than us. Do not harden your heart today, but listen. Repent. Go back to your God because he is good, not to try to get him to be good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. What a horrible night this would be if what we were left with is stop being hard-hearted. Fix yourself. Find your way back to God. But we have a God who came for the hard-hearted and the cynical. We have a God who came to save the stuck. And so we give you praise for that and we give you thanks. Tonight, God, demonstrate your power and do it again. Open eyes. Put a heart of flesh in someone who walked in the doors with a heart of marble. And bring all the rest of us to greater life in Christ whose hearts still get cold and hard. We ask this in your name and for his sake. Amen.